Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. Today we're going to be looking at the first eight verses of the book of Revelation. We're going to do a thorough Bible study through this particular book. I'll give you a, I'm going to give you a prolonged introduction because to, to properly get the, uh, the message of the book, it, it requires us to, to lay a solid foundation. You know, I don't know how many of you in this room are of this sort, but maybe you're the kind of person who will walk in when a friend or your husband or wife is watching a, a TV program, and you may walk in and sit down, get up, walk, sit down, go around, come back, and then you turn and say, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, my, my, my girl, my wife does that all the time. So what do they say? And she makes up, I'll make up stories. I, I, I make things up. I do. I'll say, well, that, that, that guy, yeah, that guy, you see him, yeah? Well, yeah, he, um, he, 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 he lost all his hair, and, and they put some uh, raccoon hair on him. I make up stories for her. She'll go, oh, really, really, and she believes me. Um, because she always walks in right in the middle of whatever it is and wants to know what's going on. And uh, I'm always giving introductions to her. Well, that guy did this, and that woman did that, and all of that. Well, you know, you, you can't walk into the middle of, of Revelation without knowing what John intends to communicate to you. And so what I want to do today is I want to give you in the first eight verses a foundation. I'm going to give you information that helps you to understand this book and its direction. And, and naturally, as we begin to go through the book, I'm going to be picking up and trying to make sure that, that uh, much of it is, is relatable to us today so that we can see how this book is unfolding right before us, even right now. But today, what I want to do is lay a thorough foundation. If you take notes, you may want to, because about half of this study is going to be foundational, fundamental, basic things. And then we'll move into the application of it. So let's begin reading at verse 1 here. Revelation chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 1. I'll read to verse 8, and we'll get into our study. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, 
and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, as I was praying about what to do on a Sunday morning, I began to, to think, Lord, what book should we move into seeing that we concluded 2 Corinthians. And so my heart was moved to uh, begin a study in the book of Revelation. So I looked up to see when is the last time I taught the book of Revelation. And the last time I, I taught this book was on a Wednesday night in 2014. But the last time I taught the book of Revelation on a Sunday morning was in 2004. So it's been 16 years since we as a congregation have gone through the book of Revelation, I would believe it's probably high time that we do so. And so I think it's the right time for us to once again look at the book of Revelation. Uh, I, I will lay a foundation, as I mentioned a moment ago, a brief foundation of the book so that we, can, we have a, a way to view the book. Uh, I'll begin by saying the book of Revelation has also been called the book of consummation. It concludes God's plans of redemption and it reveals his victory over his enemies. Now, somebody immediately says within themselves, enemies, are you telling me that God has enemies? And, and the Bible makes it very clear that indeed he does. As a matter of fact, the psalmist asked a question in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. And so we begin in Psalm 2 and the introduction to Revelation by noticing how the psalmist asks a question, why do the nations rage? When he said, why do the nations rage? The word rage speaks of banding together. It speaks of conspiring to cause a commotion. Why do the heathen, the word nation also can be translated heathen. Why do the heathens, those who reject God, why are they banding together, conspiring to cause a commotion? Why are they joining together with evil intent? Why are they joining together to plot evil is the, is the question because they have set themselves. When it says they set themselves, that, that, that word set means to, to set themselves with hostile intent. They have set themselves with hostile intent to, and have made plans against God. And they're plotting against God and against his anointed, he said in Psalm 2. The word anointed is the word Mashiach. The word Mashiach speaks of the Messiah. They have, they have set together, conspired to do evil against God and his Messiah. Well, there's something that we need to remember. We need to remember that the battle is not against the church alone. We've seen this right now. 
I believe that part of the reason the Revelation is an important book for us to look at together as a church is we're seeing this right now unfolding before our very eyes, that, the, that those who hate God, enemies of God, I must say, the Bible would call them that, enemies of God are conspiring and coming against God and His anointed. They're coming against God, His anointed Messiah, and those who represent Jesus, which is the church. We need to remember the battle is not simply against the church alone. It's really against the anointed of God. It's really a battle against God. It's rebellion against Him. In John 15, verse 18, the question is asked, or actually the statement is made, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So the real hatred isn't simply towards the church itself, guys. The things that we're seeing right now isn't just against the church. It's a rejection of God himself. And it's a rejection of his anointed. It's a rejection of Jesus Christ. So it goes deeper than people just not liking Christians because we're so evil evil and and it's so easy to dislike us it, it goes deeper than that we only represent what the what the world is rejecting because the world is plotting to overthrow god even as satan did remember what the bible teaches about that they're saying let us break their bonds in pieces let us rebel against his rule let us rebel against his laws that's what satan did isaiah 14 verses 13 and 14 Speaking to Lucifer, to Satan, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Those are called the five I wills of Satan. And what it represents, what it actually reveals to us is that he had rebellion in his heart and he desired to be like God. So the rebellion that we see and the rebellion that the psalmist is speaking about and the things we'll see in the book of, of Revelation are all showing us how God deals with his enemies. You see, the rebellion is against God himself. We receive this, this anger because we represent him. And today we're seeing what rebellion against God and his anointed actually visually looks like. Anything that represents God is a target. In the first nine chapters of Genesis, God established three institutions. He established the church, marriage, and human government. In the first nine chapters, the church, marriage, and human government. And all three of these God-ordained institutions are under massive and constant attack. Right now, there are churches being vandalized. The vandalism against the churches is more than simply defacing property. It's a rejection of God. It's a rejection of his authority. It's a rejection of the symbols that remind them of God and his authority. Did you know that churches in California, Florida, Minnesota, New York, Kentucky, Texas, Tennessee, and Colorado have been attacked during recent violent protests as have many synagogues. Did you know on July 11th, arsonists torched the historic Mission Church in San Gabriel Valley? On the same day, a 24-year-old man crashed his car into the lobby of the Queen of Peace Church in Ocala, Florida, and then poured gasoline and lit the church on fire? That in August, a statue of Jesus was toppled and beheaded in Miami? Did you know that just last Sunday, August 30th, 2020, 
A statue of the Virgin Mary erected in front of Our Lady of Lebanon Church in Toronto was decapitated. That across Europe, there have been a growing rise in attacks on church buildings, including violent acts of desecration. That vandalism was carried out in 1,063 attacks on churches and Christian symbols. There is an attack going on even as we're speaking. There's a rejection. And it's not just against the church. In fact, it is the heathen raging against God and his authority. And many wonder, what's going on? And when is the Lord going to move to deal with this kind of evil? Well, we'll see that in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, how that it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, how long will you allow this? Well, the book of Revelation answers this question. The book of Revelation is called the Revelation because it's the only New Testament book that is primarily prophetic. The word revelation, when you see the revelation, is the apocalypse. It's a apocalypsis in, in Greek. And the, and the word means, revelation means to unveil. It's the disclosure of truth about things that before were unknown. So it's called the revelation. We know that in chapter 1, verse 1, that the book is primarily intended to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that as we go through the book. Somebody says, when was this particular book written? Well, the date of the writing is around the years 90 to 96 A.D. There was a writer by the name of Irenaeus. He was a church father. He lived from 130 to 202 A.D. Irenaeus was a student of a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp was a student of the apostle John. And so Irenaeus wrote a book called Against Heresies. And he wrote that Revelation was written almost in our day toward the end of the emperor Domitian's reign. Now, we know that Domitian reigned in, from 81 to 96 A.D., and that's where you get the book's date. Now, John wrote this book when he was exiled because he says, and we'll see this next week in verse 9, he had been an effective witness of Jesus. So he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and Patmos was one of several places that criminals were banished by Rome. Early tradition says that John was banished to Patmos by the Roman authorities. This tradition is credible because banishment was a common punishment used during the imperial period for a number of offenses. Among such offenses were the practices of magic and astrology. The Romans viewed prophecy as belonging to the same category, whether pagan, Jewish, or Christian. Prophecy with political implications, like that expressed by John in the book of Revelation, would have been perceived as a threat to Roman political power and order. And so he was exiled for his effective witness. So as we study this, we're going to see that the book of Revelation, when you study it, can be approached in various ways. There are those who think that Revelation simply presents spiritual principles. There are others who teach that all the prophecies have already been fulfilled in the past. Others consider Revelation to be a history of the church in the form of an allegory. An allegory is like a fable. People think events have symbolic meaning. We hold, for those who take notes, we hold what is called the futurist view. This view acknowledges the influence of Rome uh, 
the, the influence Rome had as it warred against the early church, and, and it influenced the book. It accepts the bulk of the book as prophetic, looking at the events occurring as immediately preceding the second coming and containing teaching concerning the tribulation, the return of Jesus, and his new creation. And so Revelation unveils the character and purposes of God as are revealed in Jesus Christ. And God reveals his plan for the church throughout eternity. Now, this would include those who first read the book, those living up to a second coming, and up until the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. It's a book filled with prophecy. Now, we need to remember when you talk about prophecy that God created and controls time. Therefore, God knows all things. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand I will do all my pleasure. So God said, declaring the end from the beginning. God knows all things. And occasionally, he reveals a future to prepare us for what he's about to do. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, an Old Testament book, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So God reveals his will to us and prophetically will do so through his prophets. In Amos 3, verse 7, surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. And Peter made that clear in 2 Peter, in chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, when Peter said, we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to be looking at the revelation. Let's look at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. This is how he begins. He begins with what is called a chain of progression. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, who is the theme of revelation, which God, so that speaks that God is the source of the revelation. He has revealed this to his servants. They are the recipients of the revelation. He sent and signified it by his angel. The angel is the intermediary of God's revelation. And to his servant John, he was the eyewitness declaring the revelation that he received. So he begins by simply outlining this progressively. And speaking of the fact that John received it, verse 2 says, He who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So I'm testifying. I'm testifying here of the things that I've seen. And he's writing that down in the Revelation. Now, you know that John wrote the Gospel of John. And you know that he wrote three letters called the Epistles of John. So he's saying, this is something I'm testifying of, though he's testified in other places. But he's saying, I'm witnessing of the Word of God. And that's what I'm writing this for. 
And then verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. For, he says, and he begins this way, the time is near. Blessed is he who reads, those who hear the word of this prophecy. The prophecy will bless those who read, hear, and keep the words of the revelation. And that's how scripture is normally understood. It's read, it's understood, and it's obeyed. Well, he says the things that have been revealed to John are things that must shortly take place. Some of the things that began to take place within a short time um, of the writing are included. But it doesn't mean that everything would take place in a short time. It really speaks more of being aware that the time is short and that we should be prepared. From the day I got saved, from almost the beginning, when I began to go to Calvary Chapel as a young man, I was told that the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. I was told from the very beginning to be ready, to be aware, to be prepared. Why is that? To scare me? No, it was to prepare me. Because when you look in the New Testament, you'll see very often that there are calls, exhortations for us to be ready and that the time is short. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the apostle said, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. James in chapter 5, verse 9 said, do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So what this is, is to encourage us to, uh, to remain steadfast, to listen to this message. When we see the conclusion in chapter 22, verse 10, it says, He told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. The time is near. And so he says to us several times throughout the book, if you have ears to hear, well, you need to hear. Now notice again in verse 3, I'll go a little further. He said, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And he goes on to say, and keep those things which are written in it. Now, here's something for you. This is something you wouldn't necessarily know by just reading it. When he says, blessed is he who reads, it's not simply us in here right now reading as if it's just a blessing to, in general. What it really is speaking of is blessed is the one who reads it. He's speaking of the person who's publicly reading this. That's what the word is speaking about. Blessed is he who reads this. So this is on the public reader. Remember that the word, the letters would go out to people uh, in churches and, and uh, the pastor would take the letter that Paul wrote or whomever wrote and he would read it publicly. And so the public reading of the word of God has always been a part of the church. So the first application is blessed is the one who's reading it, the public reader. But he's also speaking of those who hear it and those who keep his word. Now, obviously, it's not only in the hearing, but in the doing that results in the blessing. You know, as I begin, I can't help but say it this way. There are quite a number of people who hear plenty of Bible studies who never do anything that that the word says to do. They, they know it. And, and some of the people I've met over the years, and I've been a Christian for a long time now, there have been more than one person I've met over the years who, who's able to talk about theology who doesn't live it, who's able to talk about things related to the Revelation or Daniel or other books of prophecy, and they're able to speak concerning some of the things that are in those books, but they don't live as if they really believe it and see, there's a difference between just hearing it and obeying it. 
You see, to hear means to apply. There are, there are a lot of people who hear, but they refuse to obey. That's why in Luke 6, 46, Jesus would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, and do not do what I say? That's why in John 14, 15, he would say, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's not just the hearing. If there's anything that the church needs to do today, it's obey. Because we already know plenty but we refuse to obey. And when he's speaking here, he makes it very clear that the one who is blessed is the one who's reading, but it's also the one who is hearing and keeping those things. It's the obedience that demonstrates that you actually believe in God. And it's not difficult to trust in God and believe in what he says. 1 John 5, 3 says this is, the love, this is love for God, to obey his commands. His commands are not burdensome. And so when you hear and you obey, you're demonstrating that you love him. You see, some hear God's word, and they resist it. Others hear God's word, and it causes great joy. In Psalm 119, verses, verse 111, it says, Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. In Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I want to know your word, and I want to obey it, and it causes joy in me. Well, why should I be blessed? Why do I want to be blessed? Again, verse 3, blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy keep those things which are written in. Why does that matter? For the time is near. When he uses the word time, if you take notes, the word time is not speaking of like the time on a clock or a calendar. That's not the word that is being used. The word time is speaking of a season of opportunity, an era. And he's saying the next great era of God's redemptive history is near. What is that great era? Jesus is returning soon. In Romans 13, verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Jesus is returning soon. Soon We'll be looking at that. I don't want to belabor that yet. We'll be looking at that in detail as we go through the book. And so he's saying the time is near. The time is short. The era that is leading to the return of Christ. Be aware he's coming. Well, in verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Again, I mentioned to you, I'm going to need to give you some information to know what this is all about. He speaks in verse 4 of the seven churches. So there are seven churches receiving this, and, and you see them named in verse 11. He speaks to the seven churches. He says, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Chino Valley. So he's speaking to all of us. We'll add an eighth. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, who is to come. This is from God. It's called a threefold greeting. God from him who is, who was, who is to come. God who inhabits eternity. Verse 4, the spirit. Notice how he refers to the spirit as the sevenfold spirits. What is that? Sevenfold spirits. He actually uses that phrase in chapter 3, verse 1, 
chapter 4, verse 5, and chapter 5, verse 6, sevenfold spirit, the seven spirits. Well, that's speaking of the fullness of God. All you need to do is mark this down, Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, and you'll see it. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, it says this, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. That's called the sevenfold spirit. It's giving to you the attributes. It's communicating to you God's fullness, the Holy Spirit's fullness. It's not like there's seven different spirits. It's speaking of the Holy Spirit and seven characteristics. It's referring to his fullness. And then he says in verse 5 from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so Jesus is given a description. He's the faithful witness. He's faithful and was faithful to the Father until death. He is called the firstborn. When it speaks of the firstborn, the word firstborn doesn't speak of the first chronologically born. It's a title that speaks of his prominence, that he is preeminent. He's firstborn because he's the first one who was raised from the dead permanently. In Colossians 1.18, it says he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth, and the kings of the earth will confess him as supreme Lord. There's no king, no earthly ruler who has jurisdiction over Jesus. None. Remember when Jesus was standing before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate? And remember how Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, I can have you executed. I have the power of life and death. I could have you put to death. And how in John 19, verse 11, Jesus answered and said, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. The Bible tells us that Jesus is a king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's why we bow our knee to him. That's why we obey him. That's why we're meeting here inside today, worshiping God and praising Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is to be honored. My governor is not my savior. Jesus Christ is. And that's why we do this. People don't understand that. People understand, oh, you Christians, you Christians. No, wait, wait a minute. You, you know, you know I, I honor the government. Of course, I pray for him. But he didn't die on the cross for me. Jesus Christ did. And he is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. And in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, it says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In 1 Timothy 6.15, he will manifest in his own time he who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so when I bow my knee, I bow it to Jesus Christ and no man. 
I bow to Jesus Christ because he is my king. And that's what we see right from the beginning. And notice why we worship him and bow our knee to him. Verse 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He's redeemed us. He's purified us. He's released us from the power of sin. And he did it by giving up his life for me. In 1 John 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. From all sin. Not a single sin remains there. The blood of Christ is able to wash us from all sin. The enemy likes to remind you of what you've done, and he does. Maybe, he's, maybe he does with you what he does with me. I have a mind that conspires with him sometimes in the sense that the enemy will remind me of something I've done in the past. It happens all the time. All the time. I can wake up in the morning and I can say to myself, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wish it was kinder than that person. And then in my heart already begins to condemn me and say, yeah, you, you're not a good person. You're not a, a kind person. You're not a loving person. You're not compassionate. You don't care. That's the way you've always been. That's the way you'll always be. My heart can condemn me, but God is greater than my heart. He knows all things. And Jesus Christ, when he died on that cross and poured out his blood, he cleansed me from all sin, and he cleansed you from it too. You're brand new in Jesus Christ, and the enemy has no authority over you. The, the blood of Christ purifies us from all sin. And what else has he done? Verse 6, he made us kings and priests to his God and Father. When it speaks of us being purified and all being washed by the blood of Christ, that's a picture of what it, a word that is used called consecration. The word consecration speaks of setting something apart for holy service. In Jesus, we, the church, are kings and priests. We've been set apart to serve him. And we have direct access to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. In 1 Peter 2 verse 5, the apostle said, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He went on in the same uh, chapter, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, to say, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You belong to God. And what are we to do? Declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. You live that way, don't you? I am a holy person, not because I made myself holy. God knows that's not true. But because he made me holy. The holy, the word holy speaks of being set apart. God has consecrated you. You have been called by God to represent the kingdom of God itself. And when people see you as an ambassador of Jesus with that message of reconciliation that we saw revealed to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, then that message of reconciliation that we present to people that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, we live as those who are partakers in the same blessings that we offer other people. And we tell people that, that God can make them new. And then they look at us to see whether that is so. Especially if they've known us for a while. They'll look at you and they'll wonder, well, if you're preaching about a God who changes lives, 
Well, they will rightly ask, why isn't my life, your life changed? And so I'm aware of that. And I don't want to make excuses for my failures. I accept them. But at the same time, I don't want to live in them either. And I know there's no perfection this side of heaven. I know that I will fail. We all do. But I've been set apart. And I have identified in a different way. You see, I've, ha I've had friends over the years, even pastoral friends, who have said to me, and I don't want this to sound as badly as it could, but I've had friends of mine who have said to me, you know, you, you ought to lighten up a bit, David. You're, you're so sober-minded. You're so serious, you know. But, but the gospel is serious. Why wouldn't I be? I enjoy myself. I, I laugh. God knows that. I tease. You'll see this in a minute. I'll, I'll be doing it during this. I always do. Um, but, you know, I, I just know whose kingdom I represent. That's all. And, and I know that there are times that I'm in a certain place that I may, not, I may not know who's around me. I may not know. I don't know who's there, who notices me. Just this last Friday, my wife Marie and, and uh, our friends Randy and Jeanette, Randy and Jeanette took me out for, for, for dinner, you know, for my birthday. And, uh, and uh, it was nice, you know. He bought me a, a hot dog. No, we, we went out to... And we were at Joey's, you know, everybody knows Joey's down, down the road here, Joey's Barbecue. And we're there, and we're talking and laughing and enjoying ourselves. And um, after the dinner, I, my wife and I, Randy and Jeanette, get up. We begin to walk out. And as I'm walking out, a, a brother is standing right there, and he says to me, Hi, Pastor David. I run across people from our fellowship all the time. You never know who's there. You never know who's listening to your conversation. You never know. I went to a gas station over here on Central and, uh, and uh, what is Riverside? Was Riverside Drive? Yeah, on, on Central Riverside Drive. I, I, I made a mistake. I actually made a wrong turn, but I needed to get gas. So I went there to get some gas, and, and I was washing my windshield, and, and a, a brother steps out. Somebody steps out of the door and yells out, stop stealing our paper towels. <laughs> <laughs> And he's laughing, and he says, hi, pastor. He goes to our church. You never know. You really never know who you're going to run into, right? You never know. You're the same way. I don't know if you know this, but if you're in church often enough, people get to know your face, and they see you. They see you in Costco. They see you in the stores. They see you in the gas stations. They see, I've told that to our worship team. I've said, you're standing up here singing. People look at you. You may not see all of them, but they do see you. And they will see you at the thrifty. They will walk up to you in the grocery store, and they will look in to see what you're buying. Because they do that to us. So we've learned to hide the wine. No, they, they, will, they will do that. To, see, I told you I get dumb. See, here we go. It's a moment of dumbness with you. And so... But they do that, and, and, and you have to be aware. You have to be aware who you are at all times, not because, oh, let's just find a way. I'll have someone score me some wine so I don't have to. No, I'm not saying that. Oh, I'll buy Christian Brothers. Christian Brothers is Christian wine, right? No. <laughs> I'm just saying that he has made us kings and priests. Think about it. Think about it. You are in the body of Christ called a king or, and a priest, queen for you ladies, royalty. 
So you, you live as those who represent a kingdom that is greater than where we're living right now. And he's speaking about that. He says to him in verse 6, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May God be praised forever. Behold, he's coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. So he says, behold, he's coming with clouds. Behold. That word behold is a word that is used to draw our attention. As I was preparing this, I thought that word behold in the English is found throughout the Old and New Testament. It's used quite often, a couple hundred more times than that. Why is he using the word behold here? Because you see, it's a word that draws attention. It's a word you find in the New Testament to draw our attention. It's like when John the Baptist pointed Jesus out to, to John's disciples in John 1.36. It says, looking at Jesus as he walked, uh, John said, behold, the Lamb of God. He's pointing him out. It's like when Paul wrote concerning the rapture of the church in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 54, where he began by saying, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. This corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. It's like when Paul spoke of being completely transformed because of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And now he says, behold, behold, he's coming with clouds. Every eye will see him. So the book begins with the return of Jesus because Jesus is expected to return at any moment. Notice how he speaks of coming with the clouds. When you read your Bible, you'll see that clouds can have various applications. Clouds in the Bible can symbolize the awesome presence of God. You see that in Exodus 33, verse 9, and Numbers chapter 10, verse 34. But it also could be a reference to the saints returning with Christ. In Jude 14, it says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Behold, the Lord comes. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, that verse speaks of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye, verse 7, will see him, including Jews and Gentiles who are alive at his return. You see, this answers a question many have asked. Jews, many Jews will be saved during the tribulation. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. We'll see that in detail later on in the book. You see, Jesus' return is a promise. In the 260 chapters of the New Testament, his return is mentioned 318 times. One out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to the return of Jesus. And the anticipation of being with Jesus is what is to fuel our lives and motivate us to be ready. The Bible tells us 
that the church is the bride of Christ and that the bride of Christ is to be prepared and we're prepared by the washing of the word of God. We have a, a program some of you have seen. It's on Friday nights um, around 6 o'clock or so. Friday nights, John, John uh, Mata is the, um, he, he talks to Marie and me. I forget what it's called again. We changed the name. Let's Talk Marriage. It's called Let's Talk Marriage because John's got a bad marriage. And so, uh, <laughs> let's talk marriage. And we're supposed to be living as if we're anticipating the return of Christ. And so, that means that because in Ephesians 5, the church is portrayed, pictured as the bride of Christ. And all of you know that passage, that the church is the bride of Christ. All of us know that marriage represents Jesus and the church. Now, I don't know how many married ladies I have in this congregation, but I can say John was asking me just this last week, part of our, part of our Q&A that we have and opportunities to share with married couples, and John was asking me about that old saying, ball and chain. And, and people have heard of that phrase, obviously, oh, I got the old ball and chain. That usually comes from the men speaking about their wife. She's the ball and chain. And so what's the ball and chain? Well, the ball and chain is a picture of when you used to be in the old days when you were a criminal, they put a ball and chain around you. They would actually have a chain. It would have a, a clasp on it. They would put it on your leg, and you couldn't run away. So we call it our ball and chain. We also call it honey. And so, so we were talking about that the other day. And as we talked, I just started to share with him about being, you know, the wives and men. Because there's a difference between a wife and a man, uh, a, a wife and the husband, also known as victim. There's a, there's a difference between the way they, they are. And so we were talking about that. And I said, you know, and just shared what we all know. You know, when, when I grew up, young ladies, little girls, when they played together, uh, often, when I grew up, they often played um, house. That's what they used to play. They played house. So you'd get the little girls, and they'd sit around, you know, and they'd visit and talk about being married. And if one of their little friends didn't show up, they'd talk about her and being married. <laughs> she thinks she's so cute. That dress isn't cute. But anyway, they would, they would sit around them, and they would talk. And they would talk about that. That was just real. That's the way it was. Maybe still is to some degree. When, when a baby girl is born, they would buy them a baby doll. They'd get her a little, little doll. And from they, that's what they got them. If a little boy was born, they'd give them a baseball glove and a bat or something like that. But the little girls got dolls. That's what they got. And as they grew older, they would carry that little doll around. My, my granddaughter, Olivia, is a year and a half. And she doesn't have a little doll that she's carrying around with. She's got a little bear, I think it is. A little bear that she's in love with. And she, cares, and she puts a bottle in the bear's mouth, the whole nine yards. Nobody's teaching her to do that. That's instinct. That's within her. She does that. She babies it. She carries it around. Every once in a while, she throws it to do something else. But she <laughs> <laughs> And as the kids grow up, they begin to plan things. And, and girls begin to think about, about one day getting married. Many of them do. They still probably do. One day getting married. And often they're going to have a Prince Charming who's going to come into life and he's going to sweep them off their feet. And then they're going to have a, a wedding. And so what do they have today? They still have them. They have Bride Magazine, 
right? Well, she gets in, oh, I'd like to have this dress here, and I'd like this kind of flowers here. And they're planning at 13, 14, 16, 18, 19, 20, whatever. They, they're looking at these things because the day is going to come when they're prepared to marry the man. Now, that man is not doing the same thing that the girl is. We, we, we don't even think about it. I mean, she's got a dress that she's going to buy. She already knows when she's 14, I want this dress. We rent a tux. We don't even keep it. Some victim had it the week before. We'll use yours. That's a fact, right? And, and so we give them it back. And that's what we, the woman will put in some plastic thing. And, and 20 years from now, we'll look at it wishing she could put it on. <laughs> <laughs> guys don't sit around you know when when i was a kid and that it doesn't happen now when the boys would would sit around we'd sit under a tree or whatever you know we were not we didn't turn to each other and say hey what do you guys want to do you want to you want to play married we wouldn't do that <laughs> We wouldn't do that. Play house? Are you kidding me? We'd pick up sticks and hit each other, find acorns and throw them at each other. That's what boys do. There's no groom magazine. Picture a guy there just, oh, I'll wear that suit. I don't think so. We don't do that. We're entirely different. So the day comes when the woman is marrying her prince charming. And everybody stands when the music's playing and the back door is open. And she walks through a radiant bride who prepared herself for her husband. Um, how many ladies in this room just decided to wear your jeans and flip-flops and not do your hair? Some, you know, hippies in my day, that was the cool thing to do. But most, most women, no, I want to wear this gown. I want my hair done in a certain way. You don't have guys who are saying, I have to have George do my hair for my... <laughs> we don't even get our hair cut. Sometimes we don't even shave. We're getting married. But the woman, oh, man, you know, she, it is her moment. I was sharing that in, in, in today uh, for a service, how that in a woman's life, it used to be said, there are two great days in her life. I wonder how many of you have ever heard this, her wedding day and her funeral. I don't know if you've ever even heard that. Her wedding day and her funeral. She wanted a beautiful funeral, and she wants a beautiful wedding day. They actually prepared it one time for those two great days in her life. That was the way society used to be, her wedding day and her funeral. And so it's true today for many where the women are preparing themselves for the, for the husband. Nobody normally We'll just say it's no big deal. Well, the Bible teaches us that the bride has made herself ready. And the question is, am I preparing myself for my Savior who's returning? Because that's how you're supposed to live, as if he's even at the door. As if, and we'll look at this more detail later, but even at the door. When that cry comes out, the bridegroom comes. The bride was supposed to be ready. You see that in Matthew 25. The voice, the bridegroom comes. She prepares. And some did not have their lamps filled with oil. And some did. Some were prepared. 
and some weren't. Jesus spoke about that. We're supposed to be prepared because he can come at any moment. And so that's what John is speaking to us about. This fuels us to live properly. It, it, it fuels us, this knowledge that it's, he's coming soon, it, it fuels us to live openly, unashamedly. In, in Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus said he would come again and he would receive us unto himself. The question is, are we all ready what kind of life are we to live? We're to live a life of faith, a life expecting to be with Jesus, that he could be here at any moment in Luke 12, 39 and 40. Understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. There's this sense of expectation to be prepared at all times. And so he's telling us that. He's saying, you need to be aware. Behold, verse 7, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, and they who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. We'll see that clearly when we continue on with this book and give you more detail. And finally, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God speaks only here and in chapter 21, verse 5, declaring that he's the Alpha and Omega, the word Alpha and Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. When he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, it represents more than just the first and last letter. Alpha and Omega represents all the letters in between. I am the entire alphabet. I am sovereign over the entire course of human history is what God is saying. I am the Almighty. I am supreme over all things. I am. I am the beginning, he is saying. I am the end. Who is, who was, and who is to come? I am the Almighty. And we need to remember that in these last days, that we worship a God who is all-powerful, a God who loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. A God who warns us and says, my enemies have conspired, but I will hold them in derision. I who am seated in the heavens shall laugh. But we're on his side because we have trusted in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus comes, we will be prepared. We'll be ready. And we are waiting. And as we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to see all the reasons why we should be prepared and we should be waiting faithfully for he is coming even as the word says the time is near. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.